0: Invite you to uh, open your copy of God's Word, swipe there, click there, however you get there. Again, to Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll begin in verse 18 and go through the end of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, as we are quickly approaching the end of this uh, of this book. And we see here in these verses the unshakable kingdom that is ours in Christ. Uh, I don't know about you, uh, but my experience over the last several months being in Hebrews has been a lot of fun. I've often said that, and um, we still have another chapter of Hebrews to go, um, so, you know, not saying goodbye to Hebrews just yet, but I've often said that the book of Exodus is my favorite book of the Bible, uh, but I think now that Hebrews is becoming my favorite book to preach, uh, it has been really hard at many points, but, um, but, but really meaty and meaningful. And um, Uh, transformative for me at several other places as well. And I I pray that if I've been faithful to to teach and to preach it well, that it's been that way for you also. Uh, Join me in a moment in your imagination and think back to a time when there was a skill or a concept that you were trying to master. And the moment when that skill or that concept finally clicked, Uh, For me, I go back in my mind to uh, college. I think it was my sophomore year, and I thought I wanted to be a business major, and I took a business accounting class. And uh, business accounting, for those of you who aren't accountants, accounting is not math, okay? It's just, it's not. I know there are numbers, but it's not math. Accounting is a language. If you're good at learning new languages, you're probably good at learning accounting, but I'm not good at learning new languages, so you can imagine how I did in accounting. That was a humbling experience because i 'm good at math, but I was bad at accounting. It took me about two thirds of the semester in this basic introduction to business accounting class for me to finally understand the difference between debits and credits and why they were different on opposite sides of the balance sheet. Why are you, you, all of you understand this? Everybody 's laughing like, "Yeah, I get it. no problem. I'm the weird one. Okay, it took me 10 weeks to figure out why debits and credits are different things on opposite sides of the balance sheet on your expense thing and on your assets allocation and all that. It was crazy. I, didn't, I, I, I struggled really hard in accounting until about 10, 11 weeks in to the class when finally something clicked. And, and this class that I thought was going to be the death of me uh, ended up being survivable. I wouldn't say I thrived, but, but I made it through accounting because I finally, something just finally made it made sense. I was able to understand it. Maybe it wasn't accounting for you. Maybe it was like learning to shoot a basketball. That's a skill that's that's far more detailed than you would think. Well, we're about we're approaching March Madness here pretty soon. We're going to watch a lot of college basket, basketball coming up. Now, praise God, fortunately, unfortunately, the Lobos are not involved in any of it. But whatever, that's the burden of living in Albuquerque. But shooting a basketball is a difficult skill. It's hard to do the same over and over and over again. But if you want to be a good shooter, you've got to have that. You've got to have your shooting motion down pat. Same with hitting a golf ball. A golfer's swing has to be the same every single time if he wants to hit that ball cleanly. Whatever it was for you, some skill, some concept you were trying to master, you remember the time when it clicked and all of a sudden everything changed. That climax of, of learning where all the work that you had put in finally comes to a moment where it makes sense and you go, ah, this is it. So here we come in the book of Hebrews to this, this climax of the author's argument, of the author's intention for writing this book to the Hebrews. We're, we're coming to where everything should click, should come together. The point of realization that the author of Hebrews has been working toward all the way, the, the climactic understanding of the superiority of Jesus over all other things, the surpassing greatness of the realities that he brings believers to. This is where the author of Hebrews has been bringing us. In Hebrews 12, 18 through 29, the author of Hebrews encourages his Jewish background, uh, the, uh, friends in Christ, He encourages them to see the heavenly realities that they experience in Christ. To see them, to recognize them. And he warns them not to refuse Christ who speaks with divine authority and divine clarity and who brings an unshakable kingdom for all those who are united to him by faith. This morning, our main idea from Hebrews 12 verses 18 through 29 is this. See what is yours in Christ and receive it with joy see what is yours in Christ and receive it with joy. This morning, we must understand the heavenly realities that Christ brings us to and to receive them, to bring them, embrace them in our lives by believing him. Would you stand with me as you're comfortably able, as we honor God by reading his word, Hebrews twelve, eighteen through 29. The author of Hebrews continues in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. For you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on, on earth, much less will we escape... If we reject him who warns from heaven at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. See what is yours in Christ and receive it with joy. Verses 18 through 23 of our passage today have the the first call to the Hebrews and to us as well. See what Christ offers recognize what Jesus stands to give to those who are in him. What he offers us is, as we see in verse 18, is not a mountain of fear. Jesus does not bring us to a mountain of fear. Now these people, the Hebrews to whom he's writing, are Jewish by background and ethnicity. And they would have grown up knowing the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, knowing especially the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so as the author of Hebrews describes the thing that they have come to, uh, which is not a, a a thing that can be touched, blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, sound of trumpet, so on and so on. As his readers are reading this, they're thinking back to Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 20, where just shortly after God had brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he brings them to Mount Sinai where he will give to Moses or to the people through Moses the law. We read in Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 20, these words, this description. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. This scene at Sinai is terrifying. But just in your mind's eye. Imagine yourself there at the base of this mountain. Not much of a mountain, more like a hill, but they called it a mountain. We have real mountains. They have hills, but relatively speaking, a mountain. At the base of this, at the base of this mountain, looking up, And seeing just thick darkness and clouds surrounding the top of the mountain. And you see Moses go up into the cloud to meet with God, and and hearing maybe the voice of Moses echoing down from the mountain. And then what comes in response to the voice of Moses is thunder. The Israelites were terrified. So much so that, that when Moses came down from the first conversation with God, they said to him, Hey, look, Mo, we've been with you a while. And this is all good, but that's scary. So here's what we want you to do for us. You go up and you talk to God because y'all have a good thing going and we'll stay down here. Don't let God speak to us. We're too afraid to hear it. The fear that the Israelites had at the sight of God coming in thick darkness and cloud at the top of Sinai led them to, to plead with Moses to God. Please, Moses, don't let him speak to us. Now, Mount Sinai, while, while terrifying, is not a bad place. Sinai is a good place. It's a place where the good law of God was given to his people. But still, it's a terrifying scene. The people were afraid. And so Mount Sinai, even though it's a good place, stood in the minds of the Jews, even to these Hebrews to whom our author is writing, as a place of fear and trembling. Sinai invoked feelings of terror. But this is not Recognize this is not what the Hebrews have come to in Jesus. Verse 18, you have not come to what may be touched, a mountain like Sinai. Instead, what is ours in Christ, but what Jesus brings us to, is not a mountain of fear, but a home of joy. Verses 22 through 24 give a contrasting image of a very different destination to which Jesus brings those who come to him by faith. And what he brings them to is something more real. It's something more awesome. It's something even more delightful than Sinai. The home of joy that we have here, that Jesus brings believers to, is described in many wonderful ways that, that say essentially this is more than just a place of physical rest, it is the very joy filled and life giving presence of God. See how the author describes it? He calls it Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion was a way of speaking of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem sat on a, a hill uh, in its day. Well, it still does sit on a hill in its day. Again, we wouldn't call it properly a mountain. We have sandias. We know what real mountains look like, but all the same, they, would call, it, they, they call Jerusalem Zion. And here, the author of Hebrews says, we've not been brought to uh, the physical mountain of Sinai, but we've, we've come to Mount Zion. But here he doesn't mean Zion in terms of a physical city. In Christ, we we don't have the the reward of, of living in Jerusalem. Rather, it's called the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The presence of God, the true Mount Zion, is the heavenly dwelling place of God. It is his city that is not built by human hands, but designed and had its foundations laid by God himself, as Hebrews 11 verse 10 says. It's the places we read where angels gather together to celebrate the rule and the reign of God in the cosmos. It's where the place where also those who have lived and died by faith have seen the perfection. They've seen the end of their salvation. They received the full reward of being in the presence of God. There is nothing and no place that is better than what God has brought us to by faith in Jesus. The author of Hebrews says, see what is yours in Christ not a mountain of fear, but a home of joy. Friends, this morning, realize the results, the, the end, the goal of the gospel is far better than the best stuff of this world. See what is yours in Christ. Recognize that what the gospel, what the good news that Jesus died for sinners and rose from the dead to justify them to God by faith, what that brings us to is something far better than anything else you could imagine but let's do that for a moment. Imagine your life for just a second. If everything were just as you would like it, imagine your perfect life, perfect house, perfect spouse, perfect job, perfect car, perfect kids, uh, perfect pastor. Already images of John Piper and Tim Keller and Adrian Rogers are coming into your mind. Perfect house, perfect spouse, perfect job, perfect car, perfect kids, perfect pastor, no financial worries no strife, no COVID, everything perfect. Imagine that. Friends, this is not what Christ offers. Jesus does not bring you to a life like that. What Christ actually brings us to is far better. Far better than you can imagine being perfect. He brings us into the glorious, joyous, peace-filled presence of God, our Creator. All of the best stuff in this world are mud pies in a pig pen compared to being in the unrestricted presence of God friend this morning do not miss this see what is yours in Christ better than the best stuff this world has to offer and do not misunderstand what is the point of the gospel of Jesus Christ not to give you your best life now not to give you your best life in this world not to give you everything perfectly the way that you want it. That is not what Jesus brings us to, but something far better. Jesus brings us to eternal life in the real presence of the God of the universe who made you to know him and to love him and who loves you in return by sending his son Jesus to bring sinful people like you and me to him. See what is yours in Christ. Then as verse 24 leads us, seeing what is ours in Christ. There's the call in verse 24 to believe Christ. We've been brought to this heavenly Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God where there are angels that are constantly rejoicing, constantly partying in celebration of all the good things that God has done. The heavenly presence of God where those saints who have lived and died by faith before us are, are, have had their salvation made perfect even now, and we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 24 reminds us how we've gotten where we've gotten. It reminds us how we get to all that Christ offers us. It's not by being your best self. It's not by doing better. It's not by being a moral person. It's through faith and trust in Jesus, the sacrifice for sins. Jesus, who is, as verse 24 says, a better mediator, You know what a mediator is? A mediator is a person who goes between two parties at conflict to try to bring the two to peace or bring about some sort of arrangement or understanding. Jesus is a better mediator. He's not like Moses, that that one mediator who stood in the gap to speak to the Israelites uh, uh, for God, to bring them the law of God. Rather, Jesus is the eternal Son of God in human flesh. And this is the point of Hebrews uh, chapters 4 through 10 and, and, and the argument that the author has been making of the greater priesthood of Jesus. That Jesus is a better go-between, between between us and God. Not just because he's, he's a better guy than Moses, but because he's God in human flesh. He's fully God and fully man. He's the only person in all of existence, in all of the cosmos, that can perfectly understand God, perfectly understand people, and stand in the gap to bring the two together in peace. Paul says to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus is the only one who is able to perfectly mediate, perfectly b- bring parties at conflict, God, a holy God and a sinful people to bring them together in peace. He's a better mediator too, not just because he's fully God and fully man, but because the relationship that he brings man, kind, and God to is better than the relationship brought by the law. The relationship that we have with God through Christ is one with unrestricted access to him. Now think about the relationship that the law brought in Israel uh, that was uh, uh, practiced around the temple for the most part. If people wanted to approach God, they had to bring a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice for sins, to a priest. The priest would offer the sacrifice in the temple. And then once a year, the high priest would offer a sacrifice for all the people. And he would take the blood of that sacrifice into the innermost room of the temple where no one else could go but him and only once a year into the presence of God to make atonement for sins. Everything in the law is built to segment, to divide the people from God, to show that God is holy and they are not. And that a holy God cannot be approached without care, without much care, by sinful people. The law was showing the holiness of God. It's not God being a jerk saying, I don't want you near me. It's God teaching the people what his holiness is like. But now in Jesus, we have a better mediator than those priests in the temple. Because even those priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Jesus had no sins to offer sacrifices for. Instead, he gives his own sinless life. To forgive the sins of all people, once for all, those who would trust in him. He's a better mediator because he brings unrestricted access to God. And as we've already begun to say, he's a better sacrifice. Verse 24 is kind of funky, I'll be honest with you. He's a mediator of a new covenant. We're good with that, I think. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If you know exactly what that means without any hesitation, exactly what verse 24 is saying there, um, and you were to raise your hand and say, yes, I knew that. I'm not asking you to do that. I would say, are you sure? This is a tricky verse. I'll just be honest. Abel is the brother of Cain, sons of Adam and Eve. Cain, in his anger, killed Abel in Genesis chapter 4, the first murder in all of Scripture. Horrible, tragic event. And here, Jesus is being compared to Abel in what sense? It seems that their blood is being compared, the sprinkled blood of Christ that speaks a better word than that of Abel. So what is the author of doing what is the author doing here? How is he comparing Jesus to Abel? Is he comparing Jesus' death to Abel's death? I don't think so. We go back to Genesis four, we see that Abel does not die for sins. He doesn't die to rescue anyone, to redeem anybody. Abel dies because his brother goes into a, into a murderous rage and kills him. Rather, I think we're comparing not Jesus' death to Abel's death, but Jesus' sacrifice to Abel's sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, the author reminded us that Abel offered a better sacrifice by faith, and he was commended to God by it. You remember Abel's sacrifice was the first animal sacrifice given by a human to God recorded in Scripture. He offers the firstborn from among his flock. He was a shepherd. Cain, his brother, offered produce from the field. And God had favor on the faith-filled, faithfully given sacrifice of Abel. And he did not have uh, favor upon Cain's sacrifice. Cain gets mad, kills his brother. Abel offers a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice by faith. Presumably a sacrifice for sins. Given with faith that God would receive it, that that animal, as a substitute for him. Compare that to Jesus' sacrifice. Sacrifice that is without stain, without blemish, without sin. His own life given in the place of sinners. His blood speaks a better word than the blood that Abel shed of that animal in Genesis. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10 says, We've been sanctified, that is, we've been made holy, we've been made clean through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Not year after year, not day after day, not sacrifice after sacrifice, once for all. Here's the point. The first animal sacrifice for sins given by Abel was made in faith. And it was not a bad thing, but it was limited in its ability to perfectly atone forever. The blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is given once for all time, is a better sacrifice. And his blood speaks a better word. It gives a better commendation to God, not because it's done in faith, but because it's completed by the only perfectly faithful Son of God. Believe Jesus, the author of Hebrews says. He's the one who got you here. So this morning, I call you, friends, as you have seen the greater heavenly realities that Christ brings us to, you this morning, believe Jesus. And if you haven't yet, be baptized. Believe Jesus and be baptized. Charles Spurgeon, the great British Baptist preacher, when preaching on Hebrews 12, verse 24, said this, Fly, sinner, fly away to Christ. His wounds, like clefts in the rock, are open to the doves that need a shelter. Fly, sinner, fly. The refuge, the city of refuge is near at hand, standing with open gates, ready to welcome you. Fly, sinner, fly. To believe in Jesus is to trust Him. To be baptized is to be immersed in water upon profession of that faith. I dare not alter my master's commission, he says, citing Mark chapter 16. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved, but the one who refuses to believe will be condemned. There is no other alternative. Seeing all that Jesus brings us to, there is one call to all of us: believe him. Believe him. We are saved. We are forgiven of sin, by a gift as a gift of God's grace received by faith in Jesus, not just believing things about him, not just believing that Jesus lived, not just believing that he died, not just believing that he was raised from the dead, but actually resting yourself in faith, in trust, in confidence in the person of Jesus and what he's done for you to to sit down on him in faith. Friends, some of you need to believe Jesus for the first time. Some of you have been in church for a long time. Some of you have even been baptized, uh, uh, but you have not really believed Jesus. You have not really trusted Jesus. You've been counting on your church attendance. You've been counting on uh, good actions. You've been counting on your reputation among church people for your salvation. You've been counting on the fact that you got dunked underwater on a Sunday morning for your salvation, but you've never really trusted Jesus. Friend, don't delay do it today. Believe Jesus today and be baptized. Some of you have been walking with Christ for some time. You've, you've trusted in your heart that, that Jesus is your savior, that he is Lord, that he was crucified for your sins and raised from the dead, but you haven't been baptized yet. Now listen, baptism is not necessary for salvation. It doesn't bring you extra grace from God, but baptism is a public and a bold way of saying, I identify with the crucified and raised Jesus. He is Lord of my life. I have have died to my sin. I have have turned away from living a sinful life as as I show that by being buried under the water, so to speak, and Christ has raised me to a new life of faithfulness, of joy, of peace with God as I have trusted Him. Friends, some of you need to believe Jesus for the first time today. And some of you need to make your your already existent faith in Jesus clear and public by being baptized. However the Lord is leading you this morning, do it. Believe Jesus, be baptized, and let me know today how you need to respond in this way to God's word today. Do you need to trust Christ for the same time? I'd love nothing more then to pray with you and talk with you about how you can have assurance of your right relationship with God this morning. So as we're dismissed in a little while, I still got another sermon point, so don't start zipping up your Bibles yet. But as we're dismissed in a little while, I'll be outside greeting you. Please feel free, take the liberty to pull me aside and say, I need to talk about coming to faith in Christ. If you need to make public your faith in Jesus by being baptized and you don't want to delay any more... Then you come, take the liberty, pull me aside and say, Pastor, I need to talk today about being baptized and soon because I I love Jesus, I'm trusting him, and I need to make that public. See what is yours in Christ and believe him so that, as verses 25 through 29 demonstrate for us, you can receive an unshakable security. See what is yours in Christ, believe him, and then receive, by that same faith, an unshakable security. We read in verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. There we learn that disaster comes to those who refuse Jesus. Verses 25-27 through of Hebrews 12 compose this final warning passage in Hebrews. We've had several of these. One in Hebrews 4, one in Hebrews 6, one in Hebrews 10, now one here in 12. The one who is speaking that must not be refused is God. And at Mount Sinai, he spoke on earth. But now he speaks from heaven. How does he speak from heaven? He speaks through his son, Jesus. You go back to the beginning of Hebrews. You read in the first two verses of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like men, like men like Moses. But in these latter days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The Israelites who heard God speak from Mount Sinai did not escape the judgment of God when they disobeyed the covenant regulations that God gave to them. You can read the end of Deuteronomy, the last several chapters there, as God gives Uh, promises of blessing if they'll keep his covenant. And he gives promises of consequences, of destruction, of disaster, of punishment, if they break the covenant. And we read through the rest of the Old Testament, the story of the people of Israel breaking the covenant. And do you know what happens? Everything that God promised would. The Israelites who heard God speak from Mount Sinai did not escape the judgment of God when they disobeyed those covenant regulations. And in the same way, but all the more serious as the son of God, Jesus, the Christ, God in flesh, as he speaks a more authoritative word than that of the law or the prophets. It's not a contradictory one, but it's more authoritative because now it's the son speaking as he speaks a word greater than more important than bringing fulfillment to the law and the prophets. The consequence for hearing that word and disobeying it will be all the more severe. As the revelation of God through his Son is all the more clear and abundant verse twenty six speaks of a day when God will bring judgment upon the earth, speaks of a day when He will shake not only the earth but also the heavens, a way of pointing to that final day when god will 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 bring to account all things. Now the author here uses a passage from Haggai chapter two, verse six, to make this point. If you go back to the Old Testament prophet Haggai chapter two, you'll see that That through the prophet Haggai, God had promised to shake earth and heaven in a figurative sense to cause all of the riches of the world to come to his people Israel as they were returning to Jerusalem from exile in Babylon to rebuild the temple. God said, I'll shake heaven and earth so you have everything you need to rebuild the temple as you're returning. But here in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is taking Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 and applying it to a future event. When God will shake the heavens and the earth, not in a figurative way to bring blessing to his people, but in a very real and spiritual way to bring judgment to all. The point here is this. The day of God's final judgment is coming. And with it comes disaster to everyone who has refused to hear his word, to repent of sin, believe in his son Jesus, and be saved. Especially this word that is spoken by the sacrificial blood of his son Christ. There's disaster that comes to those who reject the word of God, who reject the call of God to repent of sin and believe in Christ. But on the other side of that, there is rest and security that come to those who worship him. When God shakes the earth in judgment, he will remove, as he says here, he will remove everything that does not belong to his kingdom. Anything that is not of eternal value in the resurrection, in the new heavens and the new earth, will on the day of God's judgment be removed. It will all be gone. We know the devastating power of earthquakes, of of a shaking earth. In the late 1980s, there was an earthquake that hit the Bay Area of California. Um, And and you probably remember seeing that because it happened uh, during the World Series that was being played between the A's and the San Francisco Giants. And you probably remember also seeing the aftermath of that earthquake and the great destruction that it brought. Pieces of the Bay Bridge that connects San Francisco and Oakland fell down and cars were falling down onto the lower decks. You remember the devastation of buildings that you saw on TV, loss of life, injuries. Across the bay, in the western part of the bay, is a little county called Marin County. It's right at the northern end of the Golden Gate Bridge. And there in Marin County is a little place called Strawberry Point. And on Strawberry Point, at that time, rested the campus of Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary, now Gateway Seminary, uh, my alma mater. In 1989, the seminary had already been there in, uh, seminary Point or Strawberry Point for over 30 years. And in the middle of the earthquake in the, in the 1980s, those who were living on campus and, and working there on campus at the seminary felt a rumbling, felt a shaking, and when it stopped they went back to work. There was no devastation. The walls didn't come tumbling down. The, the, the ceiling didn't collapse. And it's not true just for them, but it's true for many others who live in Marin County as well. Do you know why? Not because there's something special uh, about the seminary campus, like God had, had particularly blessed it, that it would never you know, be victim to disaster. No, it's because Strawberry Point and that area of Marin County sits on bedrock it doesn't sit on top of layers of sand and soil and dirt that have built over years and years and years of erosion and other things. It sits on bedrock. And so when earthquakes come, its foundation doesn't turn into water and slurry like sandy foundations do everywhere else. Its foundation is secure. So they felt a little rumbling, but nothing came tumbling down. Let's see what I did there. We know the devastating effect of earthquakes, but we also know the importance of being rooted, of being grounded, of having a sure foundation. So the call to Hebrews here, in light of God's coming judgment, is to be grounded and to be dug into the bedrock of the kingdom of God, to come to that heavenly city that cannot be shaken, to gladly receive that unshakable dwelling place and the one who has built it with worship and joy as we come to Christ, our mediator and purifying sacrifice. Do you want to be sure-footed on the day of God's judgment? Ground yourself in his kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, it is a serious call, a serious call to find the rest and security that comes to all who worship God because he is a consuming fire. Verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. Why should you take this seriously? Because God is a consuming fire. And as a consuming fire, He at once burns up all that is sinful, all that is temporary. He burns up everything that is of the earth. And at the same time, He simultaneously purifies by that same fiery holiness. He purifies what is precious in the crucible of sanctification to increase the purity and the value of that which has been placed in the furnace. God, as a fire, is simultaneously dangerous, destructive to those who are apart from him, and life-giving and purifying to those who are held securely in his grasp. This morning, friend, as you receive the hope of an unshakable security through faith in Jesus, do so by worshiping God for his salvation by worshiping God for the deliverance from sin and death that He gives to us in Christ. And love Him for His sanctification. Love Him for the fact that He is making you holier day by day by the power of His Holy Spirit. The great Christian writer J.I. Packer wrote in his book, Knowing God, which by the way, you all need to go by and read this afternoon if you haven't yet. J.I. Packer said, there is great cause for humility in the thought that God sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow humans do not see, and that he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself. This is half of the truth of the gospel, friends, that all of us are far more sinful, far more undeserving of God's love than we could ever dare imagine. J.I. Packer says, There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and to love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason, He wants me as his friend and desires me and desires to be my friend and that he has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. Half of the gospel is that you are more sinful and more wretched and more undeserving of of God's love than you ever dared imagine. But on the other side, you are in Christ more loved, more accepted, more received, more forgiven than you could ever dream for. Worship God for his salvation. And may I add that there is great reason to love God deeply in the realization that even as he has saved you from his fiery wrath through the blood of Jesus, so also does he intend to mold you by the heat of his holiness to make you most fitting as as a citizen of his unshakable kingdom. Jesus doesn't promise you your best life now. He promises you unfettered access, unprecedented approachability to God today and forever. He offers you life in the presence of the one who made you. And as he's bringing you to that place, as God is bringing you to himself, even as you trusted Christ as savior, he is also molding you by the heat of his holiness so that you'll be ready, so that you'll be prepared so that you will have all that is necessary, be all that He intends for you to be as you enter into His presence. Worship God for His salvation, yes, and love Him for the hot, holy heat of His sanctification. Friends, this morning, see what great reward is yours in Christ unhindered access to God who made you. See what joy there awaits you in Him. See the holiness that God desires to work in you and receive all of that today. Embrace all of that today in your mind and in your heart through trust in Jesus Christ. This is the climax of Hebrews. Jesus is better than everything and he brings us to something better than you could ever imagine. So trust him. Receive him. Don't delay. Trust him this day. Let's pray together that the Holy Spirit would cause it to be so.